if God exists, why doesn't he make it more obvious? I mean, this question has bothered believers and non-believers alike. Well, we tackle it and more on this episode of Christianity Still Makes Sense. Welcome to the show that loves doubters. On this channel, we make sense of Christianity by making sense of the doubts that can deconstruct us with near apostate and now apologist, Dr. Bobby Conway. I'm your host, Tim Hall. Well, we look at stories of the Bible, and there are times that God has appeared in some seemingly obvious form. Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, Paul, and several others were exposed to God in such a way his existence was undeniable. Well, why don't all of us, or at least those who doubt God's existence, get the same clear revelation? Well, over the next few weeks, we are going to look at the topic of divine hiddenness, but we are going to do so addressing two audiences. The first audience is the non-believer. The second is the believer. There are people who fail to believe in God because they don't think it's obvious enough that God exists. Then there are believers who believe, but they feel ghosted by God as they wonder, God, where are you? Bobby, let's address the non-believers first this week by discussing the objection, if God exists, why doesn't he make it more obvious? I think first off, as it relates to God's hiddenness, it wasn't always this way, Tim. God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the garden. Who was hiding out? Well, they were. It was God saying, where are you? Nevertheless, in our post-fallen world, our distortion field has been greatly limited and we are spiritually impaired. Now, some seem to sense God without a problem, while others claim they can't sense him at all. And when we think about this, I've heard atheists claim that they want to believe, but God hasn't made it clear. They've asked, but it seems to no avail, so they argue. What's the disconnect? I think the question we're asking uh, at this stage, is God's hiddenness a strong enough argument to reject him on account of it, as some seem to have done? Now, Michael Ray, a, a well-known Christian philosopher, in his Hiddenness of God book, he writes, the idea that divine hiddenness counts against the existence of God is largely a 20th century phenomenon. Now, Ray is referring to this as a problem for non-believers. We all know that there have been Christians throughout the ages and even in the Jewish culture as it relates to the Old Testament that followers of Yahweh have wondered, God, where are you? But as an objection that non-believers seek to use to say God is not obvious enough, this is relatively new. Uh, Ray goes on to write, the problem of divine hiddenness ranks alongside the problem of evil as one of the two most important and widely discussed reasons on offer for disbelieving in God. Well, I, and I think that's exactly right. I just recently watched uh, Matt Dillahunty, who's a, a pretty famous atheist, uh, you know, give a talk on divine hiddenness. And he, he echoes that same thing. He said, besides the problem of evil, and he goes out to lay out the problem of evil, God's hiddenness is is the primary objection that him and a lot of people that are, you know, kind of under his umbrella, people that follow him or watch his channel say. But but Bobby, there seems to be a few issues here, and I'm thinking of the, the sender problem and the receiver problem. Can you talk about that as we lay the groundwork for this discussion here? 
You bet. So the question is this, has God as the sender not made himself clear enough or is there a problem on the receiver's end? Mm. The scriptures depict the issue, uh, obviously not being with the sender, namely God, but with the receiver. That is those humans who aren't receiving him. Now, as a sender, as you know, Tim, God has leveraged different ways of disclosing himself, first through general revelation and second through special revelation. As we consider first general revelation, uh, God's general revelation has been disclosed in both creation and conscience. So as it relates to creation, we see this, for example, in the Old Testament in Psalm 19 and in the New Testament in Romans 1 and as it relates to conscience in Romans 2. So like just for a few little snippets in Psalm 19, people could go on and read all of the verses, verses one to four. But how about the first verse? The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaim his handiwork. Or when we think about Romans chapter one and verses 18 to 20, I mean, just a few of the phrases we learn for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And then Paul says, so they are without excuse. So what we learn is the receiver can't blame the sender. Uh, that's as it relates to creation. But what about conscience? Well, as Paul shifts his argument in the next chapter of Romans, he talks about God's law being written on our hearts so that people uh, that would claim that they really can't know who God is, well, their conscience convicts them. Their conscience accuses them. People can read those verses for themselves. Now, second, God has revealed himself through special revelation. So we considered real briefly, there's general revelation where God makes himself known through creation and conscience. But what about special revelation? This is where I'm thinking about the prophets or miracles, uh, the incarnation, of course, the gospels that relates to his death, burial, and resurrection, or God's word. Now, in his book, uh, Natural Signs and Knowledge of God, C. Stephen Evans, a philosopher, he shares some various natural signs of God as depicted in nature. And I would recommend this book as a helpful tool. While discussing what he refers to uh, in his book as a wide accessibility principle and the easy resistibility principle. So according to Evans, Tim, there is a wide accessibility principle. And that is to say that God has made himself known through general revelation, and that is widely accessible. Yet at the same token, uh, it is easy for some to resist what he refers to as the easy resistibility principle. And I think that we'll get into more of things such as the fall and what causes people to resist him. So to Evans, God is widely accessible, but can be resisted. And yet the Bible doesn't depict a sender problem. The issue resides on the receiving end. So again, that no one will be without excuse. 
Well, yeah, and I'm I'm reminded of that verse in Psalm 114 that says the fool says in his heart there is no God. So that that's that's right. on the the receiver and not the sender. And well, well, now that you've exposed us to this sender receiver problem, um, maybe, maybe you could elaborate a little bit more on this receiver problem that we have going on here, and and, and help us unpack it uh, for the skeptics that claim that the problem is really the sender. Sure, you bet. Now, uh, the most well-known work on this has been put out by philosopher and atheist John Schellingberg, who wrote an influential book called Divine Hiddenness in Human Reason. Mm. And in it, Schellingberg concludes that if an all-powerful God existed, then every reasonable, non-resistant person would come to believe. So notice, he calls uh, this person a non-resistant individual, but he claims there are those who are non-resistant and don't believe. So he contends there must be a cinder problem, right? Like if you've got somebody who's non-resistant and if God has made himself widely accessible, like Evans maintains, then you wouldn't have people who are non-believers. So therefore, since we have non-believers uh, as a result of non-resistant people, then the problem falls on the sender. Well, that might look like a difficulty for us, but Tim is, will unpack. I don't think there is. Uh, Schellingberg uh, writes in his Hiddenness argument on page 79, uh, many people in our history have failed to believe in God without resistance of God in any way coming into the explanation of their non-belief. Now, again, uh, to stay without resistance of God in any way is if we can really know that, right? Now, if God really desires a relationship, is all-powerful and loving, that should ensure a connection happens, right? That's kind of what Schellingberg is getting after. And yet, there are people who remain in a non-resistant state of non-belief. So, as a result, some atheist philosophers believe they've got a slam-dunk argument against Christian theism. Now, let's try to consider Schellingberg's argument in syllogistic fashion, uh, in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, they provide a helpful syllogism of his argument. Premise one states, there are people who are capable of relating personally to God, but who, through no fault of their own, fail to believe. Premise two, if there is a personal God who is unsurpassably great, then there are no such people. Well, here's the conclusion. There is no God. How in the world might we respond to this, Tim? Well, personally, I think the problem is with premise one, where Schellingberg would state, through no fault of their own. As Ken Samples, a philosopher who has done a great job of popularizing um, you know, philosophy for the laity, uh, he states, just because a person is not persuaded by a given argument doesn't necessarily mean that the argument is defective logically. So there are various reasons, Tim, that we can object to Schellingberg. First, I think we could say that we can't assume the person who perceives himself as non-resistant is so entirely objective as to not be blinded by other things which may be blocking his ability to capture a peak of God as existing. Yeah. Among things uh, that could be blocking this person could be things such as presuppositions or unresolved traumas or disjointed rational conclusions and all other sorts of influences. There can be a combination of 
rational, relational, social, emotional, and volitional conditions that impair one's ability to be fruitfully objective. We cannot underestimate the effects of the fall on our abilities to claim total non-bias and objectivity. Besides this, Tim, I think that people who claim non-resistance need to be honest about themselves and say, am I really non-resistant to Christianity? I mean, there are probably some things about the Christian story that such people don't like, and it could skew their sight. I'm thinking of things like hell and sin and judgment and moral issues in the Bible. But one way of getting at their resistance, Tim, might be to ask them something like, so tell me, why is it that you don't believe in Christianity? And at that point, we might get a brief download on some of their objections against Christianity. And guess what, Tim? It's then that we will have discovered that they're not so resistant after all. Right, right. I think that's one of the interesting things, particularly about this non-resistant, non-believer thing. Uh, So I'll make two points, and and then I do have uh, several follow-up questions, because this is fantastic. Uh, So yeah, I think for me, when I'm talking to atheists and, and they bring this up, it's saying, well, you don't trust me as the atheist to tell you that I'm non-resistant. And we're like, well, on some level, yeah, but as you just, you know, so artfully laid out, there are some issues that kind of come up that we just don't know, those those traumas or, or other things that kind of happen. So I think this is really interesting. But I, I, okay, so I have another question for you. Do you think if God made himself more evident that more people would believe? <laughs> Well, some people would want to argue that way, but I don't think it's that easy, Tim. Um, That is to say, I don't think a lack of revelation is our biggest problem. Mm. Uh, More revelation might not equate to belief. Uh, Who had more revelation uh, than Satan before his fall, right? Uh, Right. Demons believe and shudder. And so just having, you know, revelation of God doesn't mean will necessarily serve him. Nobody got more of a glimpse of God's glory uh, than Satan and the angelic realm. And a third of the angels would rebel against God. Why? Because of their free will. Uh, I mean, think about it. God parted the sea and shortly after it was Mardi Gras at Mount Sinai. I, I think a question we can ask is this. Is God required to be more obvious? And I don't think so. Besides, he wants something bigger and more from us than just belief. As I mentioned, the demons have that. He wants our life. And not only that, if he was more obvious and people still did reject him, Tim, uh, that might not be to their advantage. As the more light one receives, uh, the more one is held accountable for the light one rejects. Yeah, so I I think that's good. I mean, I think we have to kind of begin to start wrapping this up. we got a few minutes left. Would you concede the point that God is sometimes hidden, though? Uh, Absolutely, Tim. I mean, uh, for believers, uh, sometimes God does seem to be remote, and we go through a dark night of the soul. We ask God, where are you? Uh, But God has a purpose for that, and we can discuss that in our episode next week when we talk about this a little bit. Yeah. Absolutely. I do think we also need to be careful with the analogies that we use to talk about uh, God as um, a person who's like a father to us. While he is, his transcendence makes that 
definition of our human father relationship different. Mm. So people end up getting disillusioned by God if they think there's a one-to-one correspondence in the way that God would relate to us as a human father. He's not a human father. He's a transcendent father who's imminent with us, but we don't always sense that imminence. Yeah. So in, in your you know conversations you've had with people in your season of doubt, what do you think is the greatest reason that people might give for not thinking God is obvious enough? Uh, well, it can be things like I prayed and it didn't work out or I didn't sense God's presence. But I think the biggest thing, Tim, is the suffering in the world that people go through. Uh, they'll use that as an excuse to basically say, you know what, obviously God's uh, not really there because if he was loving and he is all powerful, then he would intervene and he would show up. And you have people like Elie Wiesel in his book, Night, who talks about seeing the horrors uh, during the midst of Holocaust and his faith being incinerated, so to speak. Uh, This has been a lot of people's uh, story, but not only that, there have been other people, Tim, who have been through tremendous amounts of suffering. And it was in those moments where they went deeper into God. Yeah. And so I I think, you know, to kind of wrap this all up, you've mentioned a few resources. What are some of the other, you know, kind of resources that you might recommend? And and I I might chime in here with some resources as well to, to people that are kind of struggling with this divine hiddenness issue. I would recommend the books that I've discussed, uh, really. I think it would give a nice focus. Michael uh, Ray's book, The Hiddenness of God. People can even listen to that on Audible. And then um, see Stephen Evans' book on natural signs. Um, I think that's just a fantastic book that helps us to kind of understand different signposts that God has made available for us on the receiving end to recognize his messages to us as existing as sender. Yeah. And so I would add on to that. Our friend Jonathan McClatchy has uh, written a few articles on this. Uh, he actually came on Dealing with Deconstruction, and we talked a little bit about the hiddenness problem and, and some of the evidences for that. So as we're kind of thinking about this person that, you know, is this non-resistant, non-believer kind of person, what would you say to that person who thinks that he's non-resistant and wants to encounter God? They're watching, they're checking this episode out. Maybe they're listening on the radio. What would you say to them? I think I would share a few things. First off, I would say don't underestimate our ability to be skewed, Mm. uh, to be blurred. Uh, We can all be in a position, myself included, uh, where we have biases and we can't assume that we're objective. Second, I would say ask yourself, what is it that you're looking for? And are you being realistic? like expecting God to do something for you that he doesn't do for others who do believe. Uh, I would want to say like, have you set the bar so high for what you expect God to do for you to convince you that you'll always have a finger to point. Uh, And you should ask yourself, like, why should you think that you should be able to set the standard for what it is that God has to do to convince you that he exists. Uh, There does seem to be plausible evidence. I mean, the person who's saying uh, there's not evidence, well, they're just denying the evidence. They might not feel the evidence, Tim, but the evidence is empirical. I mean, it's there. I mean, uh, I'm thinking of things like DNA, uh, you know, and and just the fact that nothing pops into existence out of nothing, uh, 
systemic, ubiquitous religious experience, uh, near-death experiences, uh, I mean, objective morality, uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, answers to prayer. I mean, while you can reject some of this, you just can't come and wipe it all away. Like, you can't just say there has never been a prayer answered, right? Because to say that there's no God means there has never been one prayer answered. To say there is no God means there has never been one miracle. To say that there is no God means that there's no such thing as a near-death experience where you could be in a conscious state, though pronounced brain dead. That is such a massive claim that I think that we are far more rational to believe uh, that something is going on in a divine sense because most of the world has always said God has been making himself known cross-culturally, young, old, uh, disabilities, uh, people who are healthy, rich, poor. Uh, uh, this is something that this weak minority, 5% is saying this. I just need to say, I just want to say, maybe they're not as objective as they think. And so I would say uh, another thought would be for them to ask themselves, I would say, what are your objections to Christianity? And then I would listen. And then I would say, after listening to their objections, I would say, how can you say you're non-resistant? You just shared with me your objections to Christianity. You just revealed to me that you're not resistant. You just shared with me why you're resistant. And then I would say, don't quit seeking. Uh, humbly ask God to help you, even with your unbelief. But nevertheless, Tim, um, I would say don't set a time limit on this. Uh, you don't know how long this is going to be. Some people go, well, God didn't show me by this date, so I quit believing. Well, if you're still alive, you have time to keep seeking. And so you need to keep seeking because you don't have the right to check out and then think you're going to stand before God and say, like Bertrand Russell once, Bertrand Russell said, not enough evidence. Finally, I'd say, well, you may not have the experiential sense of contact. Don't underestimate the evidential component. Just because God's presence isn't obvious doesn't mean his presence is non-existent. And so the gospel is a powerful case for God's love. If anyone wants to argue, Tim, uh, that God hasn't shown his love to humanity, well, look no further than the cross. He has shown it. And if Jesus rose from the grave, and I think the arguments in favor of his resurrection are much superior than the arguments that are against it, so much so that we would be far more rational to believe in the arguments for the resurrection than the silly, weak arguments against the resurrection, then if that's the case that Jesus rose from the grave, then that means he really did die. And if he really did die, that means he did give us a demonstration of tremendous love, which would then show that not only is God not hidden, he broke into our dark world to die for all of our dark sins as the light of the world. He shows us that he's the way, the truth, and the life. And therefore, for anybody who wants to say that God is hidden, Jesus is the example that God has broke into our world to save us. There is no one who will be without excuse. Well, amen to that. I just want to remind our listeners that they're checking out Christianity Still Makes Sense. This is formerly known as One Minute Apologist, but we are now breaking into this new rebranding of Christianity Still Makes Sense. Thank you so much for joining us. Bobby, any final words or comments before we wrap today's show up? I think that we need to be sympathetic to people who are struggling. Um, 
with discovering God, so to speak. Mm. Um, and I say that there are just hardcore, stubborn, mean-spirited atheists. I do think there are genuinely people who believe, genuine people who believe that they have been seeking God and God's not showing up, so to speak. Um, but I think that through a friendship, we can have conversations about maybe their traumas, maybe their disillusionment, maybe some of the expectations. And we can say things like, well, have you considered that maybe, look, you, 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 you put a time limit on this. I think about cosmic skeptic and he's like, look, I don't see myself as non-resistant, but God didn't do anything to show up. Well, look at how young cosmic skeptic is, right? There's uh, it's silly for him at such a young age to think that, well, he's exhaustively been through this thing and now he's just going to spend his life promoting atheism. I don't think that is the wise approach. I would say, keep seeking. And I'm not sure that when we say we've sought him, that we really seek him. I know how hard it is for me to pray, Tim. It can be exhausting. Amen to that. Well, thank you so much for checking out this episode of Christianity Still Makes Sense. There are some resources, some articles that we've put in the description of the YouTube video for this. So if you're listening on the podcast or you're listening to us on the radio, we would invite you to head on over to our YouTube channel and check out this video and all of the other videos on Christianity Still Makes Sense and, and under the old show on... um unapologetic. And so we would invite you to continue to subscribe to our YouTube channel. And with that, we will meet you next week on this episode of Christianity Still Makes Sense. Thank you for checking out this episode of Christianity Still Makes Sense. This show is just one of the many resources available to those who are doubting their Christian faith. You can also find others at ChristianityStillMakesSense.com. This is a listener-supported show, and your gift of any amount helps shows like this continue. Click on the donate link on our website. Also, catch Bobby on Pastor's Perspective, where he answers your questions. Finally, if you're watching on YouTube, be sure to click subscribe and check out our other videos on the channel. This show is sponsored by K-Wave and Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa.